Thanks for taking the time to download this BBC Radio 5 Live podcast. To search for other podcasts you might like, click bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live, where you'll also find our terms of use. Welcome to this week's podcast with myself. And myself, Robbie. And Edith. And Robbie. <laughs> it's, uh, we're here for the next couple of weeks, actually, the two of us, so I'm very much looking forward to uh, to all the variety of things that we should be talking about over the next few weeks and the guests that we've got as well. Speaking of which, uh, Josh, Josh Gad is our guest today and if you stay tuned to the podcast at the end, we have a little extra section of Josh for you. Um, Some little tidbits. Which, if you are a Game of Thrones fan, may well interest you. Are you a Game of Thrones fan? I am a Game of Thrones fan. Are you up to date? No, oh. I've got, so I probably wouldn't even listen. It's, it, I think I've got to the end of season three. Oh, I wow. Think. Oh, but I, the thing is with Game of Thrones, I know everything that's happened anyway, so it doesn't really matter. But okay. I've not actually seen it happen yet. So All right. Well, you're a busy man. You've got a lot of other things to watch uh, and a lot of things to talk about in the show today. There seem to be a lot of reviews of a real variety of Loads on. It's a busy, films. it's a busy week. Uh, and loads of correspondence from you, our, our lovely listeners as well. So thank you very much for that. In fact, I'm going to get into this week's show by reading one of those from Daniel Block, who talks about a film that you talk about a little bit later on. Having already seen The Cobbler, I can say it's one of the most curious and infuriating films I've seen in a long time. Starts out as a promising, interesting, low-key drama with Sandler in relatively restrained form, then abruptly turns into a body-swap comedy complete with the obvious vulgar jokes, then becomes an oddly dark thriller before finishing in its climatic moments as something altogether different. I'll avoid spoilers, but it's incongruous and unlikely to say the least. Oh, and the twist, if you can call it that, is blindingly obvious. Now, does Robbie agree or disagree with that uh, review? Stay tuned to find out on this week's show. Good afternoon. How are you? What just what you need to have to say from your production team just before you're about to go on air when they go, it's going to be great, or maybe it's not, or maybe it is. Anyway, I feel really I'm amped up for a great totally. show, or maybe it will be terrible. <laughs> Who can say? Uh, afternoon. How are you? Seven minutes after two and five live. It's Edith Bowman and Robbie Colin in for Simon and Mark on Five Live. Uh, we got loads of stuff coming up today, review wise. Robbie, what we got? Loads. Yes, we've got the Cobbler, the new film from Adam Sandler, Mission Impossible: Rogue Nation. Uh, Beyond the Reach, Cub, Hot Pursuit with Reese Witherspoon and Sofia Vergara and Iris. And Iris. And we also have Josh Gad, who will be with us after 2.30 talking. Pixels, not Another Pixar. Adam Sandler film. Another Adam Sandler, yes, is there, indeed. Is there, a collective, the is there a collective noun for Adam Sandler films? The Sandlers? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe you can let us know. Uh, you can do that if you want by getting in touch. You can email mail at bbc.co.uk. Text us 85058. We're on Facebook uh, and on Twitter at Wittertainment. And of course, every week we are live streaming. So you can watch the show by going to the Five Live website. I'm waving. Um, also, just to kind of keep a nice conversation going throughout the show as well, um, as well as some great correspondence already from you guys about films that you've seen over the past week or maybe, in fact, this very morning. Um, we've got a little subject that we thought would be a nice one. It's already up there on the Facebook page. So if you aren't already following us and have friended us on Facebook, then make sure you do. Karen Wood and Mayo's Film Review Show. Um, a little question. Uh, films that might have been good had it not been for maybe a not quite up to standard standard central performance so recasting to improve a film have you got any examples of that kind of thing we've had a couple in already uh david says i realize i'm in the minority but i really hate the shining 
especially Jack Nicholson's performance. A modern day replacement I would go for would be someone like Michael Pitt or Mads Mikkelsen. What do you think of that, Robbie? Yeah, yeah, that sounds, that sounds yeah. I mean, Obviously, The Shining, I think it's an unimpeachably yeah. great film, but I would love to see that role played by some other people. Um, Michael Shannon as well would be great. Right. Have you got an example? Well, it's kind of a, it's a slight spin on it. I think because, you know, um, Casino Royale, I think, you know, Daniel Craig is obviously a, a, a great James Bond. Yeah. But I remember hearing that in the build up to making that movie, they had decided for two potential routes for the Bond franchise. And one was to go with Daniel Craig as this kind of grizzled, hard-worn Bond who was, you know, just on this kind of... Uh, endurance-like tour of duty uh, in, in these various films that we've now had. The other view was that they were going to start from scratch with a new agent who was going to be played by Henry Cavill, who, of course, has gone on to play Superman. And, you know, taking Bond in as a young new recruit to MI6 and following what would happen there. Now, I think now probably Henry Cavill is too old to make that work. Mm. Once the Craig era is out, that boat has been missed. Yeah. But I would have loved to have seen what they would have done with that because I think Henry Cavill is fantastic. I mean, he's got this real kind of uh, almost Cary Grant-like charm. And I know mm. he's coming up in uh, Man From U.N.C.L.E. Which we talk about next week. Uh, yeah, next week, week after, I think. Is and, and we can, um, you know, that's obviously a film that's been heavily influenced by Bond. So there's little teasers there of what yeah. he might have done with the part. And I would have loved to have seen that. Right, I've recast the Entourage film with the British cast. So here's my suggestions. Uh, in the role of Eric, Jack O'Connell. Uh, Vinny, played by Toby Kebo. Johnny Drama, played by Jack Whitehall. Turtle, Stephen Graham. And Ari Gold, Peter Capaldi. There you go. Uh, so get onto the Facebook page and give us some suggestions of films, I guess, uh, that could have been improved by uh, by recasting the main central character. So, yeah, get involved. It'd be great to hear from you. Uh, you can email us, mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us 85058. Uh, as I said, we're already on Facebook or on Twitter. We're at Wittertainment. Right, shall we move on to the top 10, Robbie? Let's do that. Uh, at 10, then, it's Magic Mike. Yeah, Magic Mike XXL, which <laughs> a film that I'm basically completely in love with. It's um, a sequel to Steven Soderbergh's original movie about Channing Tatum. I would never have thought I'd hear you say that. Based on, look, this is this is a film <laughs> that you think has a very specific appeal, mm -hmm. and it is so much broader and so much smarter than it looks. Um, basically, it's, it's directed by Gregory Jacobs, who was uh, Soderbergh's longtime assistant director. Um, and the film, you know, it's, it's been, I remember something that Mark picked up on in his review was that it's very light on plot. You know, we've got this idea that Channing Tatum uh, playing Magic Mike has, has kind of given up stripping. And then he decides to go on for one last hurrah uh, on this road <laughs> trip with his old uh, team to the strippers convention in Florida. I've Googled it. It does actually exist. So, you know. You've booked your holiday. Just, let me just throw that out. That's, that's, that's <laughs> summer 2016 already lined up. So the film is very, very light on plot. It is just uh, Channing and his friends moving from location to location, taking their clothes off and putting them back on again. But you have to view it as um, it's being made in the style of like an old Hollywood musical. You know, there's a film that's about performance. Yeah. And it's kind of inviting you to take pleasure in the performance in the same way that the audience at these strip shows is. And, you know, the choreography is excellent. The, 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 the chemistry between the guys is excellent. And the, the, the script is incredibly funny and it says some, I think, fairly profound things about reaching a certain stage in your life and working out whether to give up what it was that made you happy because you know you should be moving on. You should be doing something different. So I would think, you know, it's at 10 in the chart this week. I don't know how much longer it will be hanging around for, mm. but I would recommend, you know, anyone, particularly if you don't think this film is for you, give it a try. You know, I was in an audience, um, very, very mixed audience, actually. It was at the Brixton Ritzy, which is my, my local cinema. And... Um, there were some some older people in there, some younger people in there. Yeah. Uh, there was me in there sitting in the back row looking completely shifty. You weren't on your own, were you? Do. I was on my oh, own. This is, this is the worst. You know, one ticket for Magic Mike XS, please. Yeah. Uh, back row, is there anything the for you there? Party. Yeah, it's, it's fine, you know. Exactly. And that, it was a real me party. But everyone's sitting there kind of twisting their hair and their fingers, sort of looking at yeah. the screen. And it was just one of those great 
cinema experiences where everyone in the room is sort of feeling the same kind of uh, love and affection <laughs> and enjoyment in what's going on. Yeah, I like the notion of that thing of, of kind of looking at kind of men in that world of, of you know, the physical appearance being an important element to their careers and them having to question how long that can survive for as well. So, you know, kind of an interesting sort of topic, I think, as well. Yeah, and you've got the flip side of that in Southpaw, which we'll, we'll come to in a minute. Before. OK, uh, number nine, the Empire Strikes Back uh, due to Secret Cinema. To yes, that's right. Not just any Empire Strikes Back, but the Empire Strikes Back in which you go to this uh, enormous factory and walk through scenes. I think the scenes are actually from A New Hope, so they kind of tee up the film. Um, this hangs around in the top ten. I think it's kind of worth pointing out that the... Um, Box office top 10 has worked out in terms of revenue rather than tickets sold. So because Secret Cinema is quite expensive, I think it's £75 a head, um, by selling 4,000 tickets every weekend, which they regularly do for yeah. this run, they, they are basically guaranteed a, a place in the box office top 10. Um, even if there are more people going to see other films, like you know the Amy Winehouse documentary, I think has just dropped out this week. Mm. More people will have seen that, but because ticket price is much lower, it's not in there. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I've not been to a Secret Cinema event. I've been to similar sort of, you know, guerrilla cinema where they'll project something in an old broken down railway station yeah. or something. It can be really atmospheric and really fun. I don't know how many people are really going to this to see the film. I think it's a sort of a fan event. You know, fancy dress, immerse yourself in this kind of pop culture landscape. And of course, one of the great things about Star Wars is that the landscape, certainly of the original three films, is rich enough and has enough in it that you can kind of totally disappear into it like a, like a bath. Yeah. I know, um, I've heard a few people, in fact, it'd be great to hear from you guys if anyone's been to this this uh, run of secret cinema because um, I know people who went to the, the Back to the Future one, which was the last one, and it was one big screen, everybody watching together. I think with this one, they're doing it slightly differently where there's a number of screens. So you're not getting that kind of communal sort of watching experience similar to the way they did it before. But it'd be great to hear from people if they have yep. been to, to kind of confirm or deny that. Uh, moving on then, number eight, uh, Bajrani Bajan. Is that right? Go on, tell me. Bajranki Bajan. There it's we go. Thank that. you. This almost. Is, uh, so close. It was a Bollywood film that was released for the Eid weekend. Like the vast majority of Bollywood films, it wasn't screened for critics in the UK, which I think is really, uh, you know, a real a shame. Um, because it's incredibly difficult to catch up uh, with, you know, I'll make time for Magic Mike XXL, you know, you, absolutely at the drop of a hat. But normally when you're, you know, if you if you miss a film in that kind of run of press screenings as a critic, it's quite difficult to catch up with it again. So I haven't seen it. I don't think we've got any correspondence. We haven't actually. seen it either. So. And, and really disappointing considering it's a number eight in the top ten. So if any of you out there have seen it, we'd love to, to hear your thoughts on it, actually. Please, please do get in touch. Uh, either on email, mail at bbc.co.uk, text us 85058 on Facebook or on Twitter. Uh, number seven then, back to the top ten in this week's top ten box office movies, Terminator Genesis. Yes, which is Genesis. kind of a weird combination of prequel and reboot and sequel and it just goes back and cannibalises the original Terminator film in the most kind of despicable and boring way imaginable. I mean, this is a film that is so busy chasing its own tail, making sure that these different timelines that have been constructed over, you know, Terminator sequel to Terminator sequel do not clash and do not contradict each other. It's so busy doing that that it actually forgets to tell an interesting story. You know, you've got um, uh, Jai Courtney as Kyle Reese going back in time to protect Sarah Connor, who here is played by Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones. Um, but when he arrives, he finds out something has changed in the timeline. Arnie's uh, T-1000 has come back earlier than expected, has basically adopted Sarah Connor as a seven-year-old and raised her um, as this kind of uh, warrior woman. And they're now waging war against Skynet. Skynet have postponed the apocalypse. They're using some kind of weird social media app called Genesis to bring about the apocalypse. <laughs> it's sort of got this buzzwordy topical feel about it, but it doesn't really work out any of its ideas. I find this film incredibly annoying and almost impossible to follow. Wow. Postponing the apocalypse. Not an easy thing to do, I imagine. Exactly. Idris Elba in Pacific Rim, he doesn't postpone it. He cancels it, right? That's Through an app. We are today, we are cancelling the apocalypse. <laughs> Don't postpone it, just, you know. Get it. Right then, number six, Ted 2. 
Yeah, so I've I, you know I, I say this about Seth MacFarlane's films all the time. I think he is a, a, a rare example of a filmmaker whose work is kind of provably bad. I think if you've enjoyed Ted, uh, Ted Two, or A Million Ways to Die in the West, his comedy western, uh, it's not just a matter of taste. You've actually misunderstood the material. It's kind of objectively terrible. Uh, the the humour is grounded in these kind of old uh, kind of homophobic sexist nonsense that was you know been grinding away for t- decades and decades and decades the film is presented as being oh we're saying the unsayable we're challenging taboos but these aren't comedy taboos at all they're just totally clapped out subjects and it's the idea that ted i mean the, the, the premise of the film is that ted is, is is married his marriage is annulled because it's decided that he's not a human being and so he has to go to court to fight to be proved to be a human being um, in, in in the same way as kind of these great american struggles for equality and civil rights over the years and McFarlane kind of, I think he believes that he's he's doing something worthwhile here and that he's saying, you know, by joking uh, about gay rights and about um, g- gender equality, I'm raising these people onto a platform and aren't they lucky with with with, with myself? But the point, that what makes it so bad is that the, the butt of the jokes are always these people that are different from him. You know, it's never Mark Wahlberg's character. It's never Ted yeah. that end up looking bad. And that, that for me is just totally kind of exasperating. Uh, well, Paul Boland's been in touch. He says, I thought I wasn't going to see a worse film this year than Terminator Genesis, but then I saw Ted too. This truly was painfully awful. It is none of the charm of the original. All the jokes, and I use the word jokes in its loosest possible sense, are lazy. Oh, there you go. I mean, I did chocolate Ted one. I found it funny because it was kind of novelty, you know, the idea of a who doesn't like a talking teddy bear that curses all the time. But I then, don't think the, the premise is that bad. Of, yeah. it's, it's like one of those kind of Spielbergian Amblin films from the 80s about, you know, toys coming to life. And then to put a spin on that and turn it into this really kind of uh, raunchy X-rated comedy, I think is, you know, in theory could could work well. Yeah. It's just the execution, which is incredibly smug and pandering. Uh, is is what makes it not work for me. Amazing. Uh, loads of you getting in touch as well about recasting. Keep doing that. Please put your name on text and things as well if you are getting in touch because it's a shame not to give you a shout out. Uh, moving down the top 10, the number five, Jurassic World. Yes, which I really, really enjoyed. I love that this is a <laughs> film that's kind of, to a large extent, about itself. You know, it's, it's recognising uh, the, the, the premise, of course, being that the Jurassic Park... Uh, the, Rather, the Jurassic Park that we saw in, in the original Spielberg film back in the early 90s has been reopened as Jurassic World. And the um, the customers are getting bored with seeing the dinosaurs that they're used to. Mm. And so the park decides it has to amp up the thrills, it has to provide bigger, more dangerous, uh, jaggier, toothier dinosaurs. And of course, uh, uh, havoc ensues. Now, I, I like that Contravoro has kind of addressed this problem of you can't just make Jurassic Park again and audiences won't enjoy it like they enjoyed it in 1993. The landscape has changed in the same way that it's changed for the organisers of the park. So he kind of really has his cake and eats it. You know, he produces these enormous big scale carnage set pieces like the escape of the pterosaurs uh, in, in this film, which you could have never done in 93. And it is kind of brash and aggressive in a way that Spielberg's film never was. Yeah. But he also has that great chemistry between Bryce Dallas Howard and Chris Pratt, which is very old fashioned and of that period. So I, I liked how it kind of squared the circle in that. Now, thanks to Laurie, who's been in touch about Jurassic World, number five in the top ten. While the film was enjoyable enough as a summer blockbuster, I think it highlights a lot of what is wrong with modern cinema. Everything has to be bigger and louder, and the overuse of CGI versus practical effects is one of the biggest issues facing modern films. Why should the special effects in a film that was made over 20 years ago look better than a big-budget film today? There's a reason why Jurassic Park remains a classic, and the makers of Jurassic World have completely missed what made the original so special. The only parts of Jurassic World I really enjoyed were the references to the original, which made me think why I am sat here when I could be watching the original back on Blu-ray at home. What do you think about that, Robbie? 
I think it's fair enough. I mean, I just, I, I just personally took something else away from it, which was that in acknowledging that Jurassic Park can't be repeated, yeah. that was actually quite a clever way to move things on. But, yeah. you know, it's not Jurassic Park and it, it's, you know, very, very few blockbusters are. Uh, number four then, Southpaw. Yeah, Southpaw, uh, kind of baby's first boxing film, which is just the, the, the most uh, cliches of, of, of the, the, the genre just piled together in, in the most unoriginal way possible. You know, you've got Jake Gyllenhaal, who has obviously trained very intensely for this role physically. You know, he, he looks the part and I believe the boxing is actually incredibly accurate, you know, if you're a boxing fan, yeah. I think you probably get a lot out of this film. It sets up a lot of potentially interesting plot threads, builds up this nice little melodramatic base, and then the the, the plot arc of redemption kicks in where he can finally end up back on this big stage in Vegas. Yeah. And it drops all of that and just uh, fits into gear with how boxing films normally go. And there, there was really nothing in this, apart from the relationship between Jake John Hall and his daughter, who's played by Una Lawrence, is really well worked out. But that's the only kind of nut of originality in, in, in what's really a very cliched fight movie. It, I mean, it should be brilliant. Can you know? I mean, you, you look at the components of the part, sort of thing, almost. And um, we've had some nice uh, comments here from uh, Robbie Jones, who says Southpaw is a masterpiece, one of the most compelling films of the year. Rachel McAdams' best performance to date, and Jake was as usual out of this world. Hopefully, one day he'll finally get an Oscar for his efforts. Michael Veal says Southpaw had good boxing matches, but the rest of the film was by the numbers fallen hero story that lacked any punch. The cast didn't seem to have much of a script to work from. The actor who made the best of the uninspiring dialogue in my opinion was Forrest Whitaker who brought class and depth to every scene he was in it was a shame seeing Jake Gyllenhaal's talents wasted portraying an uninteresting thug after witnessing his amazing turn as Lou Bloom in Nightcrawler um, what else have we got here there's another one here from Ruben who's 18 from Reading I went to see Southport earlier this week and I thought it was amazing Jake Gyllenhaal gives an outstanding performance which will which will, should be remembered as one of his best, as did uh, Una Lawrence. And there was not a moment when I felt this film was overindulgent in its fight scenes and the drama was interesting throughout. I agree that the boy in the gym could have been explored more and that Harris and McAdams were underused, but I feel the McAdams did a good job in establishing her character in her screen time. And I feel if they'd given the two women more screen time, then it would have detracted from the core of the film, Hope's relationship with his daughter. You go. I saw End of Watch again the other night. It was on telly. It's great. Film, That's a great Jake Gyllenhaal yeah. performance. Perhaps your enjoyment of Southpaw just hinges on how many boxing films you've seen. You know, like Maybe. something like Warrior really embraces. I mean, not a boxing film, mixed martial arts, but it really embraces the the, the, the cliches and the standard shape of the how uh, a fight movie should work. But it makes the stakes kind of count for something. It feels like those side stories that are motivating the fighters, uh, Tom Hardy and Joe Edgerton in that film really matter on their own grounds. They're not just about getting these guys into the ring and fighting for that kind of glory. And I think Southpaw just all feels very mechanistic. You know, everything that happens outside of the ring is mm. about advancing John Hall's progress through it. That scene in that film with Tom Hardy uh, with the dad on the bed. Don't, because you'll, oh, start, you'll start me off. You'll man. start me off. I, that's what I, so I think it is sometimes with those films is you forget that it's it's about the stuff that happens outside the ring that's as important as the stuff inside the ring for me anyway uh, number three Minions could I have any more pieces of merchandise with Minions on them in my house I mean my children are almost yellow I ate a Minions malt loaf the other day I mean, what? I've got no idea. made of Minions? I, I, I hope not <laughs> the thing about Minions to me it just feels like a missed opportunity you know if you look at how Shaun the Sheep kind of works with uh, silent Sheep. comedy yeah. and is incredibly clever and smart about adapting you know for characters that don't speak doing a very specific type of comedy for that and Minion just doesn't do that it feels to me like a Despicable Me retread Okay, I laughed my head off at Minions <laughs> I really did so much um, Number two, Ant-Man 
Yeah, which is something new and fresh in the Marvel universe. You know, I I loved how this was a kind of a low stakes Marvel movie. Although Paul Rudd really makes the the stakes small stakes rather than low. Rather, you know, he's trying to get in touch with his daughter again, and uh, it doesn't need a city to be falling to pieces at the end in order for for what's happened to feel like it's mattered. I mm. love the retro styling of it as well. You know, obviously the Edgar Wright version of Ant Man would have been great to I see. I would have loved to see that, but the yeah. Peyton Reed version is perfectly good. Yeah, um, and casting as well. I think the casting Marvel just seem to get casting like spot on. I think you know, you think of like. Tom Hiddleston is low-key and stuff. I think it's kind of really clever, you know, happened throughout the kind of history. Um, Andrew says uh, of Ant-Man, took a while to get going, but it was good fun when it did. 12-year-old daughter loved it and the whole audience were laughing. Personally prefer a much less serious comic book adaptation like this than The Avengers. Uh, Richard from the Western Isles went to see Ant-Man on Monday. I have to say it's one of the best films of 2015 so far. It was funny, different and original. Stayed on the right side of silly. I'd highly recommend it and people shouldn't be put off if it's a bit different and uh, about ants. Um, right, brilliant. And then quickly, Gareth says, went to see Ant-Man last night, but I've left it till today to email as I needed to calm down. Not from the film. It was fantastic. No, it's because someone thought it would be a good idea to bring their two four-year-olds to see the film and they talked the entire way through loudly, as did the parents. Anyway, the film was incredible and is, to my mind, probably the best Marvel movie I've seen, narrowly beating GOTG, Guardians of the Galaxy. Thank you very much indeed for that, Gareth. Which means number one movie is... Inside Out, which I kind of spoke about at great length uh, last week. And yeah. I wonder, I, I would love to hear what um, what some listeners okay. think about I've this. got loads and loads of correspondence. So here we go. Uh, first up, we have got Helen Gillespie. Hi, Helen. I hate to say it, but I was disappointed. The world the creators had built wasn't filled in enough. The islands of personality didn't make sense to me. The little minion, little workers in the brain appeared out of nowhere with no explanation. And I still don't understand what happened in Imagination Land. It felt strangely long to me. Unlike most Disney Pixar productions, I really wanted to enjoy this film but it just didn't deliver. Oh, Helen! Uh, Sarah says, my partner and I went to see Inside Out a couple of weeks ago as it premiered in Canada earlier than in the UK. My partner, who's a massive fan of Toy Story and a fierce defender of 3D, loved it. Uh, I had a few reservations about the women are like this and men are like this aspects of the inner emotions of the lead character's parents, but otherwise thought it was a surprisingly complex exploration of emotion. It's also nice that after the disappointment of Brave, Pixar chose to tell the story through the eyes or more accurately brain of a young girl. Loved it, but almost certainly didn't need the 3D. Uh, what have we got here? We've got one from, uh, oh, this is the Reverend Matthew Hunter, who says, I was disappointed. I went in with elevated expectations following stellar reviews, but somehow it just didn't quite take off for me. Maybe my five little guides were able this evening, but I rarely registered an emotion much uh, above bland. Sure, it's clever and kind of cute, but I didn't really care about the characters and the plot seemed like a psychoanalytical checklist rather than a narrative driven by a realistic predicament. That was an easy thing to say for me. Overall, much as it sounds sanctimonious to say, sanctimonious even, I realised on the way home what I thought it lacked. Soul. I guess this is probably um, part of Pixar's response and I would plead not to be uh, excommunicated from the church of wit-attainment, but beyond the novelty of the concept, it just tried too hard. However, I'm going to finish quickly on this from Anthony Edmondson. This film 
was highlighted uh, has highlighted a crack in my sight. As from about 10 minutes in, I started crying and barely stopped the whole way through. Same, same. Very nearly yep. totally losing it at various points in the last third of the film. Then I would laugh at a funny moment and instantly start crying again. By the end of it, I was totally drained and had a headache. <laughs> at this point, I should point out I'm a 36-year-old man. This oh, no, I'm, I'm, fe- I'm feeling this correspondence very much. This was is, this written this, by you? This is, it, it may well have been. <laughs> This film was incredibly sad, almost unbearably so, yet beautiful, funny, insightful and uplifting at the same time. Made me reminisce my childhood and wonder about how my children will cope with the life ahead. I feel exactly the same. I took my seven-year-old, Rudy, and I just hugged him for, for hours afterwards. I think the way in oh. which it expresses how children see the world and totally. process what's around them. And then also why that needs to change when you grow up and why it's sad that it needs to change, but necessary as well. Um, you know, that is expressed so kind of beautifully and cleanly in this film and, 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 and you know, incredibly complex ideas. You know, um, our, 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 our reverend correspondent earlier, he mentioned this kind of idea of Cartesian mind-body dualism coming yeah. in. And it's these are enormous kind of philosophical issues that people have grappled with for, for, for centuries, really. And that when Pete Doctor and Pixar sit down to explain it to you, you're like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's how it works. And it's just so <laughs> in the moment, it is so kind of the interplay between the world of the mind and the physical world is so kind of clean and moves so smoothly. It it's only afterwards that when I went back to think about it, I thought actually what they achieved there was enormous. I think it's Pixar's most impressive achievement. I think the the, the intricacy of that plotting and also the different visual styles, which again, I talked about a lot last week between the real world and the mind world. Yeah. That's something that I think would have defeated a younger studio. I think yeah. they, they would have had the ambition for that in the early days. Too much information for them. But the expertise, they would have had to you know wait till now in order to pull it off. That revelation that Joy has kind of three quarters of the way through the film, it's kind of like, oh, it just kind of oh, it ripped Oh, it was just incredible. Um, anyway, let us know what you think if you've seen any of the top 10 films. And we're talking movies right now. It's Edith and Robbie in for Simon and Mark this afternoon. Uh, we threw out at the start of the show uh, the idea just for a nice conversation going on throughout the show uh, on Facebook and Twitter and text and stuff about recasting a, a film that could have been made better by the central performance being replaced by someone else. This is a good one. If you are texting in, by the way, please put your name on the text because it's such a waste to kind of... And this is a really good response to this. But I don't You've know been who teasing you me with this for the last 15 Aha. minutes. Saying, oh, Jack years. Reacher, okay, replacing Tom Cruise, another Tom, yes. Hardy. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. The, the yes. crackle in your voice. Yes. yes. Come on, come on. I mean, that would be, that would be great, wouldn't it? Uh, Mike in Nottingham says, the last airbender was awful for a great many reasons, but it was not helped by an incredibly sullen performance by Noah Ringer in the lead role. I'd love to see someone take on that role and keep more in line with the upbeat character in the animation, a young Ryan Potter of Big Hero 6 fame, possibly. Ah, yep, yep, can see that. Uh, Similar to what Robbie said about Casino Royale, I loved and grew up with the Harry Potter films and think Alan Rickman was great as Professor Snape, especially in the later films. However, I have read that Tim Roth was the original choice for Snape, but turned it down to play Thade in Tim Burton's Planet of the Apes remake. I always wish we could have seen something, even if it's just a screen test of Tim Roth take on Professor Snape, Adam in Rochdale. But, you know, I mean, I would love to see it as well, but Alan mm. Rickman is so yeah. iconic in that part. And this the Snape Slope thing as well, because he became famous for playing Obadiah Slope in the Barchester Chronicles on, on BBC. And it just makes perfect sense for that character to have transformed into this character. Now, we were talking Jurassic Park earlier. Alex in Haverhill has said, the role of Dr. Alan Grant in Jurassic Park was originally offered to... Harrison Ford but he turned it down and Sam Neill ended up getting the role I think Sam Neill was brilliant but as a massive Harrison Ford and Jurassic Park fan I would have loved to have seen Harrison Ford getting chased by a T-Rex 
There we go. Keep them coming in either on Facebook or you can do that on Twitter as well at Wittertainment or you can text us 85058. Now, fans of Frozen will know, uh, know him as the voice of Olaf, Josh Gad. He's got a new film coming out in a couple of weeks. It's already out in the States. It's been out in the States for a while, isn't it? It's called Pixels. Have you seen it, Robbie? I have. And it is basically... Ghostbusters. This is premise-wise, not quality-wise, I should say. This is basically Ghostbusters, but instead of ghosts, characters from 80s arcade video games. Okay. Uh, Well, I had the absolute pleasure of talking to him uh, about it. First, though, here's a clip from the film. Hey, Ludlow! Grab a light can and get out here now! I need your help! Me? No! Look at me! I look delicious! They'll gobble me up like space dim sum! We're the only ones who can do this! Come on, you're the wonder kid! Brenner's right. I am the that was a clip from the film Pixels and joining me is one of the arcaders. I'd quite like to have one of the arcaders outfits myself. Actually. Are they cool? I, I want one of them. Um, Josh, welcome to the show. It's great Thank to have you, you here, Josh. Great Guy. to be here. This is the first time on the show. I think it might the, be. This is. You've never invited me before. I didn't take it as an insult. I took it as a uh, as a sign that I hadn't I hadn't come <laughs> of. Uh, of age of age yet <laughs> I, ha- I haven't gained the status hey yet. i'm a substitute so i'm on right. the sub bench okay. most okay. weeks so I, I'm, I'm, i know where, i know how you feel i know okay. how you feel um do you know what i came away from this film kind of uh really revisiting was my whole kind of you know i, I grew up i was born mid 70s right. so the 80s for me were my childhood right um and i just loved that whole kind of thing going oh yeah Ah, oh, oh, and all I wanted to do was like go home and play Tetris, right? And play Pac-Man and yeah. all that kind of thing. It's loaded with nostalgia. It's uh, anybody who grew up in the '80s is going to have so many recognizable moments in the film where they go, "Oh, oh my God, I get that's right, I remember that." And and you know, for anybody who loved those early arcade games. Um, they're all brilliantly represented in the movie uh, in terms of Pac-Man, Galaga, Centipede, and a lot of surprises. And it's just kind of an old school fun throwback. It's it's not going to win any Oscars, but it's it's certainly I think going to win over people's hearts because it's just fun. And and for me, also growing up in the '80s, it was so cool to just be thrown into that world of all of these characters coming to life. Um. This, the the way that they've morphed the the kind of real action in the CGI is is seamless. Thank you. Um, and it's incredible technology the way that they've created these brought these these characters from these games to life. For you guys filming that, that's not an easy thing to react to and act off when it's not there. I imagine. No, you're you're responding to tennis balls and uh, <laughs> an aggressive director screaming at what the tennis balls are trying to do to you, and it's a bit surreal. Um, but also a great exercise in imagination. And, uh, and so, you know, Chris Columbus, who of course has done many of these films before, uh, whether he wrote them like Gremlins and Goonies, uh, or directed them like the first two Harry Potter films or Mrs. Doubtfire, he, he knows storytelling and he knows what he needs to get out of actors and how he needs to correspond that to the special effects. Yeah. So he really does a great job of representing what that's going to be and shows you pre-visualizations before you shoot any of it. Ludlow, your character, um, he's a fun guy. He I is. Like he's, he's a, a bit of He'd be the one of the team I would, I would hang out with. Thank you. He's unhinged. He's a bit of a uh, social pariah. 
He uh, he is. Uh, I think the word would be unstable at times. Uh, but you know that was what was so fun about reading it. I remember the the first thing that I responded to in the script was, you know, he's got this crazy scene where he just suddenly verbally assaults a group of Navy SEALs. And it was just so unexpected and insane to me. And I was like, that's that could be really fun. Uh, and that sort of represents the characters. Like at any given moment, you know, he's this crazy conspiracy theorist and he can just switch on a dime. What was it like um, working with, with Chris Columbus? Because you know you, you name check just some of the films that he's worked on across the board, you know, whether it be writing or, or, or directing and stuff. I have this terrible thing called band Tourette's that if I'm in the right. company of a band, I kind of involuntary kind of sing one of their songs at their face. Yeah. I kind of would probably have done that with Chris Columbus where I'd be quoting things at him. Right. Did you find yourself in that situation? I do not suffer from this band Tourette <laughs> syndrome that you have, but I, I definitely, um, I definitely geeked out. I mean, he's Chris Columbus. He discovered the world. And then after that, he made incredible <laughs> movies that define my childhood. Um, <clears throat> what I would do is geek out and ask him questions about his films. You know, what, what was it like working, you know, like, did you know that so-and-so is going to be a great, but you know, like that yeah. kind of stuff. How did you come up with the scream and home alone? Like, did you know that that was going to be iconic? The Mrs. Doubtfire stuff. Did you know what you had when you were, you know, you just sort of like start rattling off, uh, questions about all of these pivotal moments and, and he's always game. He's yeah. always game to answer them. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's been a part of some of the most iconic films ever. Yeah. And I, I think I read somewhere as well that you said that Robin Williams was a big hero of yours as well in, in terms of... Remains the, a big hero yeah. of mine. I uh, His legacy is one that truly uh, not only touched me, but but made me want to do what it is I do. Uh, specifically, I remember seeing Aladdin in 92 in a movie theater and just being like, one day I want to do that. And his performance was just, it was so unbelievably unhinged and so spontaneous. And I'd never seen anything like it. And I I said, you know, that that's what I want to do. And you did. You have. I tried. I mean, oh come on! Yeah, I mean, look well, at look you. at Olaf and and what he is to people around the world. That's thank an amazing you. achievement. You've got to feel a little element of pride. And, and I I certainly do. And and I and I you know I I don't mean this lightly. I I think I I owe it in many ways to the late Robin Williams, who, um, who really, you know, made me want to do it and and inspired me. Hmm. And you're doing it again. Which have made a lot of people and even I'm doing happier. It again. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> excited. We're uh, we're gearing up to do a second Frozen film, and um, I don't know much about it. I just know that the whole creative team is hard at work uh, creating a, a brand new story that's hopefully as worthy of a sequel as uh, any other. And and I, I think uh, the the little I do know of it, it has very much excited me. Do you get do you get involved at all in the you know once you guys will start you know once you kind of get brought into the the kind of fold of everyone a bit more will will you be allowed to be involved creatively in it with that kind of how does it you know from a standpoint of dialogue improvisation is very much a part of what we do so a lot of the lines in Frozen they just let me play with and come up with in the room. So in that sense, yeah. When it comes to the actual breakdown of the story, not so much. Uh, they, they're all more than capable of that. And, and I think, you know, we're in very good hands. They don't really need my help. 
Uh, but I'm always eager to springboard ideas off of and and they're very um, they, they, they're amazing about uh, allowing us to just be loose in the room yeah. and come up with stuff. What a great amount of freedom to have with, with something that, you know, that, that is so huge. Oh, it's incredible. Because it allows you to kind of, you know, you, you're, you're creating that character. The story's there, yeah, but the words, you're, you're very much helping form that character and that connection then that people have with him. That's right. And I think that the, a part of why the movie works so well is, you know, the, the they weren't slaves to any process. It was really about discovery and Adina's performance and Kristen's performance, my performance, Jonathan Grau's performance, uh, all the way down. It, it There was a looseness and a freshness to it that they allowed us to to find and discover. You're a man of many talents because we know you can sing, obviously, as well. And you get to sing in Pixels as well. <laughs> uh, a little bit of uh, Tears for Fears in there. Yes. What every, a tune. Did you pick wants it? to rule the world. Yes, I <laughs> yes. did pick it. I uh, I wonder why I thought that. <laughs> I just thought it was so, it was so weirdly perfect. Everybody <laughs> yeah. wants to rule the world. It's just thematically right on the money for our film. Uh, and I'm a huge fan of 80s pop music and Tears for Fears is Certainly no exception. <laughs> so it was my homage to to them, and uh, and it's once again very random. Just sort of comes out of nowhere. I have this kind of um, sort of romantic vision in my head of you kind of going in one day and going, guys, I, okay, I've got six track suggestions for you for the scene, <laughs> and kind of doing like a sort of uh, almost like a playlist karaoke. Some going, not, what about this one? <laughs> not far from the truth. Really? Uh, <laughs> they no, they they definitely allowed me to sort of handpick within reason uh, what. <laughs> I wanted to do. That's brilliant. I love that. Um, you have this amazing collection of roles that you have within this industry, you know, whether it's theatre, TV, film, um, and writing as well with something. When you were starting off, theatre was the first thing you did at a drama school. Yeah. But then as you kind of go on and you, you bring in this body of work, do you get given more responsibility in terms of, yeah, why don't you write this? Or, you know, you go to them and go, I'd like to write this. Or yeah, like absolutely. To. I mean, I think the more, you know, proof of concept there is about what your skills are, the more um, you're allowed to participate in, in the creative process. And, mm. and, you know, it's for me, I'm, uh, it's a luxury, which I don't take for granted. And I pinch myself every day that um, I'm able to have creative input in a lot of the stuff that I do. Yeah. What's, what's going on with Gilligan's Island? You know, right now we turned in a draft. I think it's just one of those things, uh, like a lot of scripts, that's sitting there waiting for something to happen. It's, it's. I, I don't know that it's imminent, but I don't know that it won't happen. It's just one of those things where there's a lot of creative people involved from the rights holders to the studio that mm. it just things need to be worked out. A lot of cooks involved. A lot of cooks in, in that, that kitchen. meal. Yes. Um congratulations on the the success, you know, back with Book of Mormons and stuff as Thank well. You. I read this story um where I think it was when you when you were originally sort of sent the script and, and I you, didn't want to do it. <laughs> terrified. What were you scared of? Well I was scared that I was gonna get shot in the head uh by <laughs> fanatics who were not happy with the choice words that Trey Parker and Matt Stone wrote about uh, the Lord. Um, and so I was like, ah, you know, I, I don't know if you've noticed or not, but I'm not an animated character. I'm a real person in the flesh who you're asking to go up on a stage in front of people who can be unstable and sing things that are incredibly disrespectful at times. Uh, and at the end of the day, we, you know, I was involved 
in Book of Mormon from the very beginning. So we did four years of workshops before it ever hit a stage. Wow. So we really got to experience it and slowly see audiences respond and what where we could push the limit. And I sort of, the more we did it, the more at ease I became with the fact that it was just, for whatever reason, it had to work. It was going to work. And, and once... Once I bought into it 100%, I, I think there was no turning back. Great experience? The best. <laughs> the best. Fear's a good thing, you see. Fear's a great thing. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think taking risks is has been at the core of some of the most success I've had in my mm-hmm. career. And I always feel like, you know, you take a swing. If you miss, you miss. But there's always that chance that you could score a home run. Yeah. Um, I recently uh, had the pleasure of spending some time with Mr. Hugh McGregor. Yes. He's a colleague of yours. Yes. Uh, who you just uh, did work on for Beauty and the Beast, where you play, uh, you work alongside each other. He play obviously Gaston and your LeFou. No. No. He plays Lumiere. Oh, Lumiere. Sorry. Yes, yeah. the candle. Sorry. And I play LeFou. LeFou. Yes. Um, uh, and he was raving about you. I love that man so he much. He had the best time hanging out with you. Sounds like there wasn't much work done. No, no. We just <laughs> it was sort of... Goofing off nonstop. <laughs> uh, Ewan is is amazing. He's one of the most talented human beings I've ever met. Um, a great singer too. Like Moulin Rouge is such a great movie, mm-hmm. uh, and and I think he's going to uh, create a new iconic or recreate a new iconic role uh, for the ages in in his rendition of Lumiere. Uh, and we, we just had a the best time. I'm actually wrapping Beauty and the Beast next week and it's it's really sad because it's been you know three months now of shooting and and everybody's become a family and you're always sad to move on to the next thing and leave everybody behind but feel very special about this one I think it's going to be really good did uh, I I asked him you said I thought when you do something like Beauty and the Beast with Disney you you I mean you probably have it already anyway but surely it gives you kind of free access to and special treatment at the parks for for life they're incredibly, incredibly gracious with me. Um, there you go. I think, you must have need security when you go around. Well, it gets, it gets a little, it's funny because when I go to Disneyland or Disney World, it, it gets a little crazy. But I just recently took my daughter, uh, my daughters to Disneyland Paris. And it was so, pe- I could just walk everywhere. I didn't have any problem. It was, uh, I was a little insulted. I'm like, really Parisians? <laughs> No affection. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but it was, uh, it's, the, it's, you know, that's one of the many perks and incredible things about being a part of the Disney family is they truly do treat you uh, like royalty. I am. Um, I think I went to one of the parks the first time when I was like seven or eight with my mum and dad. And then I've got a seven year old and a two year old and we went last year to Paris. And it doesn't matter what age you are. You kind of step through those gates and you... It is like that kind of weird thing, that kind of Magic Kingdom thing that they're going about. But it just it does affect you. Yeah, you, kind you do. Of like you get dancing you get, down Main Street and kind yeah, of yeah, you get that. goosebumps. <laughs> yeah. So funny, my daughter. We we um we had this Minnie Mouse balloon that we bought my daughter, and for obvious reasons, we didn't want to transport it back on the Euro train. <laughs> and so um, this was like four weeks ago. She wakes up two nights ago. She looks at me with tears in her eyes. I'm like, Ava, what's wrong? She goes, Daddy, I miss my Minnie Mouse balloon so much. Can you get me another one? 
So I frantically started searching online for where you can get a helium-filled Minnie Mouse balloon. And they're surprisingly rare to find <laughs> outside. So if anybody's listening to this broadcast, please reach out to me and send me a Minnie Mouse balloon immediately. I might have a contact okay, for you. Okay, great. I've got one. She was really upset with me. What's next? Because I'm excited to know, yeah, know what, uh, what's next for you. I'm gearing up to do a film uh, that I'm really excited about uh, with, uh, I think I can talk about this. I'm not even sure if I'm allowed to talk about this, but it's it's a new film uh, with Will Ferrell that uh, that I'm going to shoot next. And, and it's uh, called Russ and Roger, and it's it's a beautiful script. And um, it's I, I play Roger Ebert, and he plays Russ Meyer, and it's about the making of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, um, and Michael Winterbottom is directing that, and no. I think it's going to be great. Yeah. Wow, are you are you a fan of Michael's work? Love, Winter love. I mean, I think the trip is one of the forget about one of the funniest series I've ever seen. Just one of the most human, uh, and I, I just I'm really excited to work with him, and uh, working on a couple of scripts right now, and just sort of. You know, taking my time deciding what's next. Brilliant. Listen, thank you for sparing the time to come in and chat to us. It's thank a you. pleasure to chat to you. Thanks, Josh. My pleasure. Cheers. Thank you guys so much. What a nice man he was. Lovely Love, chat. Was lovely to chat to. Um, also, there's going to be an extra bit on the podcast. So if you're a Game of Thrones fan, I would make sure you listen to this week's uh, podcast because Peter Dinklage and Sean Bean star in Pixels with him. He's a massive Game of Thrones fan, so... <clears throat> That's all I'm going to say. Now, cricket fans, England are 75 for two. Uh, we'll be back with Mark Pugach at Edgebaston very, very shortly. Um, we've got loads more to come up on the show today. We've still got some reviews to come, Robbie. Yeah, The Cobbler, Mission Impossible, uh, Beyond the Reach, Cub, Hot Pursuit and Iris. Uh, also, keep your thoughts coming in if you want to recast some films that you think may well have been improved by replacing that main central character. Loads of you getting in touch with that already which is brilliant so keep those coming in uh, you can email us mail at bbc.co.uk or you can text us on 85058 uh, and if you missed Josh Gad as said on the podcast this afternoon after the show we've got a little extra bit as well so make sure you listen to that if you are a Game of Thrones fan let's just crack on because we've got loads to try and get through before yes. 4 o'clock lots of releases the, yeah. the first one and biggest of the week is Mission Impossible Rogue Nation this franchise this is the fifth instalment of the Mission Impossible franchise and it's been running for 19 years what which is kind of incredible it, 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 i think the longevity of it comes down to tom cruise's position this this kind of very odd um crux point in film history where he was one of the last stars to emerge whose name could open a movie and now of course it's more about franchises and special effects familiar properties and things like that and i think mm. what cruise has realized over the course of the mission impossible films is that he kind of has to become his own special effect he has to always be pushing himself to do more outlandish stunts uh crazier feats of daring do with fewer stuntmen uh you know less safety precautions mission impossible rogue nation starts as you will know if you've seen any piece of publicity surrounding the release of this film whatsoever uh, with a sequence in which he is uh, loading some uh, chemical weapons off the back of a plane that is about to fly them to bad guys unknown. Um, here we have a clip of him doing just that and this is when it was done Cruz actually clung onto the outside of the plane and the film was being sold very much on this being him in harm's way and this is exactly what it sounds like. Package is still on that plane. Check down the fuel pump. Uh... Mechanicals are locked out. What about the electrical system? Oh, that might work. Uh, no. Hydraulics. Okay, stand by. No, oh, they're encrypted. Benji, the plane! Yes, the package is on the plane! We get it! 
Can you open the door? I'm by the plane. Benji, can you open the door? Uh, maybe. Open the door when I tell you! And while this is going on, director Christopher McQuarrie holds the camera on Cruz's face as he's clinging onto the side of the plane. And you just see the land drop away beneath him as the plane takes off. And it's incredibly exciting. And for me, this is the Mission Impossible film that I wanted to see. And I, I, I think it, it kind of, you know, th that in itself is a self-contained little sequence. It's like the, the start of the Bond films. The plot, which I kind of feel um, slightly, uh, it's, it's almost pointless describing it because it bears no real relation to what happens in the film, yeah. is that the Mission Impossible force, this is... Um, uh, taking off, I mean, this is the first one to be connected to a previous film. Uh, during the events of Ghost Protocol, which is the Brad Bird film from four years ago, I think it was, uh, Tom Cruise and, and, and the rest of his team destroyed the Kremlin. And as a result of this, the CIA, who are embodied by Alec Baldwin in this movie, have decided that the IMF needs to be brought under CIA control. So this, you know, they're not accountable enough, they need to be disbanded. While this is going on, uh, Ethan Hunt, who's Cruise's character, goes for a debrief from this plane mission. And um, during the debrief, he's kidnapped by a uh, this this what's referred to in the title as a rogue nation. They're actually a spectre-like organisation called the Syndicate, uh, made up of various kind of shadowy agents around the world who are doing things like staging natural disasters and military coups in order to destabilise the prevailing balance of power. Mm. Quite why they're doing this is never really made clear, and it also doesn't particularly matter because what the film is is a chance for Tom Cruise to hold on to the side of a plane and go underwater for three minutes without holding his while holding his breath without breathing. And do all these kind of crazy uh, over over the top stunts. There's there's a, a, an introduction of a new character as well. You've got the um, the, the regular members of the team. Ving Rhames is back. Simon Pegg is back uh, as, as Benji. I feel like whenever I'm on this program with Please you, let me on this I'm always slagging off something that Simon Pegg has done. I, I should say that I think for all that Rogue Nation for me didn't really work. Uh, I think he is a totally invaluable player in this. He yes. he is the comic relief, but he sort of broadens it out to being something more important. And because Tom Cruise is this kind of Teflon mannequin who's just bouncing around in, uh, amid all this carnage and never really, you know, not much bad happening to him. I think what um, what Peg does is he kind of grounds that and he makes him more human, which is quite important. The other way that they try to do this is by introducing a character called uh, Ilsa Faust, who is a double agent. There's no more double agent name possible than Ilsa Faust. I mean, it's like Lucretia von Traitor or something like that, which is <laughs> totally ridiculous. Uh, played by this Swedish actress called Rebecca Ferguson, who's not particularly widely well-known. Uh, she was in uh, the Hercules film with The Rock a couple of summers ago. Yeah. Um, this is supposedly a big kind of a star platform for her. Sometimes she is working in tandem with Ethan Hunt. Sometimes she's working against him. And they kind of come apart and intersect and come apart and intersect. The problem for me with this movie is that the previous Mission Impossible films, I mean, they have been about Tom Cruise's ego, like I've said, but but it's, it's you've always had a distinctive filmmaker at the helm mm -hmm. and they kind of build this playground for Cruise to, to, to kind of have fun in. So you've got in the first movie, uh, Brian De Palma, the director. Now, I hadn't watched that since it was it was out in the cinemas. I, I obsessively watched it that summer. I think I went to the cinema three times to see it yeah. and then kind of felt done with it and, yeah. and rewatched it earlier this week. And it totally holds up. Yeah. It's a real Brian De Palma film. You know, it's about spying and it's about imposture and yeah. about pretense. And 
the fact that Cruises and Brian De Palma film was part of the fun, then the second one was John Woo, totally different. And I mean, I don't think the second one is a particularly good John Woo film, but it's a John Woo film when you have Cruz doing all this heroic bloodshed, you know, jousting on motorbikes and driving through fireballs and all this great stuff. Um, and then similarly with J.J. Abrams, we didn't obviously know what J.J. Abrams was like as a filmmaker. That was his Mission Impossible 3 was his first, but you can see it's a J.J. Abrams movie yeah. in retrospect. Brad Bird as well treats the whole thing like a toy box and it's something, you know, there's all these gadgets and all these fan- fantastic little pieces of kit that he gets to play with in that yeah. movie. Christopher McQuarrie, who directs here, he does have that fantastic open, opening set piece, but really as a director, the only previous film he's directed is Jack Reacher. And the kind of binding aesthetic of that movie was just let Tom Cruise do what he wants. The same thing kind of happens here. And I just think, you know, where's the vision? It, it just, the set pieces could almost be rearranged into any order and the film would make no less sense than it does already. There's not that kind of binding vision behind it. If you want to see Tom Cruise kind of pinballing around the place, then, you know, you get that bang for your buck. And I think, you know, it, the, the film kind of works on its own terms. But mm. for me, it's it's the first Mission Impossible film since the second one to feel like it's just stringing along this very odd and very cherishable franchise yeah. and not really doing anything else with it. It's it's that thing, isn't it, when, when you have different directors doing each film, you know, it's always their interpretation of that character. But sometimes you have to make sure that that character doesn't lose its identity or kind of, you know, maintain something or, or or challenges in some way. When you start a film with that, I haven't seen it yet, but when you start a film with a an enormous, the biggest set piece like that, to try and maintain that throughout the film or at least kind of have the film go on a journey must be I mean, hugely hard it, to do. It's tricky. And that's the kind of set piece that, you know, Christopher Nolan always starts his films with something like that. If you think of the the, the opening of The Dark Knight Returns. You yeah. Know, not Dark Knight Returns, sorry, Dark Knight Rises. Rises yeah. Um, that's, you know, it's another kind of an airborne stunt and it's all done real in camera, you know, yeah. uh, and, and that's, but then he somehow maintains that scale as it goes along. I think some, one part of the problem with this film is, is the second half of it takes place almost entirely in London and it's an incredibly touristic version of London. You know, I mean, it could have, it could have effectively have been location scouted from the top of an open top bus. Yeah. You know, you've got the Tower of London, you've got Westminster Abbey and you've got, the, you know, Tower Bridge and all this stuff. Yeah. And it kind of feels like it's being made as a sort of a Bond movie pastiche. A lot of Chinese money in this film. Possibly it's been made for export. You know, audiences over there might be more keen to see Tom Cruise doing Bond than perhaps British audiences are because, you know, we've got Spectre to look forward to. Yeah. And it just sort of feels like, you know, why have you done this? Why have you not kind of played to the franchise's strengths? Mm. That You have this completely blank canvas where someone with vision, with this kind of totally singular star, uh, can do great things. Um, Peg and... Tom Cruise together though I like that that pairing they're a good double acts and as I say it helps anchor it because as well as Ethan Hunt you know Rebecca Ferguson's character Ilsa Faust does have this kind of weird you know she is playing a Bond girl style role but there's this weird kind of glaze of phony Mm. sexlessness over the top of it because she doesn't really have any chemistry with Cruise they're not a romantic couple um, and, and there's not really anything beyond that there and so what Peg does is he helps kind of humanise the main character. And that's a kind of a vital role in this film. I want to see uh, Tom Cruise do another kind of Magnolia role as well. I loved him in Magnolia. I thought that was a great role. Oh, absolutely. He... absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder if he's kind of fixating too much on these big kind of action roles where he pushes himself physically and kind of in, in danger terms yeah. and, and, and and not just embracing that, you know, because he's a great actor. Yeah. Eyes wide shut as well. Massively yeah, underrated performance. Um, Men Behaving Badly, the movie. Simon Pegg and Tom Cruise. There we go. That needs to oh, get boy. made. That would be amazing. Um, thanks to uh, Andrew. 
Andrew Hazel who got in touch. Just out of Mission Impossible Rogue Nation, uh, I found the movie a worthy addition to the series, but whereas the last movie, Ghost Protocol, was the first to successfully make the franchise feel like a team effort mission rather than run, Tom, run, and friends, this time we had too many other characters struggling for screen time over the central character, Ethan Hunt. Because of this, character motivations which are intended to convey overly complex plotting just come across as characters servicing the plot because the movie needs it rather than making decisions because they themselves need to. Thank you, Andrew and Paisley. Ed says, I came out of this film physically angry, bland acting, zero suspense and a plot as ridiculous as Cruz's time. This tried to mix 1-3's intelligent espionage with Ghost Protocol's fun ridiculousness but came out a mess. Usually love Cruz, however, he is ruined by the mind-numbing dialogue and his dumbed-down Scooby-Doo escape plots. Visually boring genetic score and overhyped action scenes. Let's all go and watch Bourne. Ooh, that is harsh. <gasps> that hurt me reading that. That was painful. Um, right then, next uh, up, should we go The Cobbler? Yeah, speaking of brutal. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, come on. Okay, so this is The Cobbler is the new Adam Sandler film. Mm-hmm. And I always go into these things and kind of hoping for the best. Because yeah. Adam Sandler, I mean, goodness, the world's between it him and Tom Cruise's career paths. But he, like Cruise, is someone who has done a couple of incredibly, you know, well-formed dramatic roles recently. Uh, the one, of course, that everyone always quotes, clearly Mark, and it was a favourite of his, is Punch Drunk Love, Love it. Thomas Anderson. Yeah. And also funny people with Judd Apatow. I think that film has problems, but uh, Sandler is absolutely not one of them. I think it's a great kind of very honest performance. Now, the interesting thing about The Cobbler is the concept behind it, though it's gimmicky, needn't have necessarily been all that bad. He, uh, Sandler yeah. plays uh, a New York cobbler uh, called Max Simkin, who discovers a magical cobbling machine in his uh, in, in the cellar of his shop that means that whenever you repair someone's shoes on that machine, he can slip his feet into those shoes and magically transform into them, of course, uh, playing on the, uh, on, on, on the proverb to understand a man, you have to walk a mile in his shoes. So that's the premise of the film. And he, he gets this, he... he 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 goes off on a few little escapades, and then it suddenly strikes him uh, one one evening when he's at home with his uh, with his elderly kind of senile mother uh, that he can possibly use this power for good. And this is the moment at which that dawns on him. How was your day, Maxie? It was good. It was really good. It was the best day I've had in a long time. Good. You worked so hard. How was your day, Ma? I better. Now that my tatala's home. Yeah. Hey, Ma, let me ask you something. You ever wish you were somebody else? Mm. I'm your mother. That's all I ever wanted to be. But if you could do whatever you wanted to do, what would it be? Um, have dinner with your father. That would be nice. That would be really nice. So I think you can hear from that clip, this isn't, you know, a product of Sandler's Happy Madison uh, conveyor belt. So yeah. it's not It's not a grown-ups, it's not a grown-ups too. It's the director is Thomas McCarthy, who's made three uh, really lovely little independent films, The, the Station Agent, The Visitor, Love for which film. Richard Jenkins was nominated for, for a Best Actor Oscar, and also Win Win, which was that weird kind of Paul Giamatti high school wrestling thing. Yeah. It was quite charming. And, you know, McCarthy wrote it and he directed it. So this is a pet project. You know, it's shot like a kind of a film that's worthy of festival sort of awards consideration. And what's so very weird about it is that from this interesting premise where, you know, Sandler could play something, he's misanthropic, he could be wandering around New York, getting in touch with people, sort of a little bit like Amelie, perhaps. Yeah. 
the whole thing just under the under this kind of interesting skin just turns into the same old kind of crass horrible kind of repugnant adam sandler nonsense as usual one of the first things he does when he when he learns about this secret ability is he he borrows the shoes of a character played by dan stevens and then goes into dan stevens's apartment and tries to sleep with his girlfriend and by obviously being disguised as as, as her boyfriend he finds her in the shower and then it only half it only gets called off not because he has some kind of moral change of heart and realizes that what he's doing is completely repugnant it's because he realises he can't take his trousers off without taking his shoes off first, and hence the spell will be broken. After that, he decides, let's go and have some fun on the streets. So he changes himself uh, into, in, into a black man and goes to eat at a restaurant and then runs out without paying. And then he changes himself into another black man and menaces himself in the st- and menaces someone in the stairwell. And then when he has to, he's, he's, he's playing a black character and then he realises, I need to be more scared than a black character. So he goes to change into a transvestite. And you're sitting in the cinema thinking... Is anyone else actually seeing this? You know, what is going on here? This yeah. is not kind of a, a joke. It's not meant to be that the character is somehow racist or has these incredibly narrow worldviews. He's just changing into other people in order to kind of play down to these kind of moronic stereotypes. stereotypes. Yeah. Um, what is doubly confounding about it is that this role seems to appeal to a comic performer because of that potential to play uh, a number of different personas within within the same movie. So, you know, someone like, for example, Robin Williams would have done it on, on form. He would have done this very well because he's great at flicking between personas. Someone who's, you know, else you might consider Kristen Wiig as well. You know, she's just yeah. great at kind of snapping from character to character. The way in which the cobbler is staged... Sandler just disappears when he puts on his when he puts on a character's shoes, and that character uh, ends up, you know, being played for for a large spell of the film by whatever kind of second tier, third tier performer or extra was wearing those shoes in the first place. So you've got a film in which Sandler is the you know notionally the star, yeah. in which he's barely in it, and it just seems like this incredible squandering of this great premise. I think. What there do you is, think's happened? I think there's a great story behind the making of this film, whereby what was originally a a, a, a really kind of a uh, fascinating conceit has just been bulldozed possibly by Sandler's demands and you know, he's coming on board okay I'll do the film but in it I want to do the following things which prove that I am still kind of sexually attractive and you know can can, can be virile and kind of so? on escapades and all this kind of thing it's just a total... that egotistical well look I mean look at the man's work you know this is this is the, the, the kind of proof of, in the pudding is in the stuff that he normally makes which is mm. when these kind of layabout slobs uh, become these saviour figures and, and don't learn anything about themselves and don't learn anything about other people the transformations don't kind of tell him anything about the city in which he lives it's just purely cosmetic it allows him to later on in the film there's this plot about gentrification and they're trying to stop this um, rogue uh, property developer bulldozing this old block of flats and he changes into this old man and there's all this it's kind funny of- that because Tom McCarthy was one of the writers on up right exactly <laughs> exactly so someone who has this this kind of pedigree of writing these kind of characters very well yeah the less said about the ending as well i mean my word it's like you know you talk about a narrative painting itself into the corner this is like he sort of paints himself into the corner of the boeing factory and gets out by bulldozing down the wall i mean it just runs roughshod over <laughs> everything else that has happened in the film any kind of last atom of sympathy you might have had for this character is suddenly just like immolated wow and it's it's a total i mean it's, it's easily one of the worst films adam sandler has made i mean that's saying something Oof. well if you are watching on the live stream you would have seen robbie almost rip his hair out there as he was reviewing that film um all right whilst i read these two recasting emails out robbie you need to think about who you'd recast then in that role as okay. adam sandler all right uh, kevin says i'm a huge steve mcqueen fan this is us talking about the idea of making a film better by recasting the main central cast Character. Can't imagine anybody improving on most of his films, but 
I think the 1968 version of the Thomas Crown Affair would have been better with an actor who could more convincingly play a slick, sophisticated and a moral millionaire businessman. Sean Connery, the original choice for the role, would have been perfect. Robert Redford would also have been a good choice. Kevin, again, he's on a roll with these. Four Weddings and a Funeral would have been considerably better if Hugh Grant's role had been played by Colin Firth. Similarly, Notting Hill would have been more enjoyable if the male lead had been played by Colin Firth. Basically, any film with Hugh Grant would be improved if Grant was replaced by Colin Firth. What is your beef with Hugh Grant, Kevin? Uh, Even Love Actually and the Bridget Jones films. Incidentally, Bridget Jones really should have starred Sally Phillips instead of giving her a supporting role. Discuss. Wow. You've got a real beef with Hugh Grant there, haven't you, Kevin? Just walk away from the Hugh Grant films. Walk away. Uh, email us, mail at bbc.co.uk. You can text us 85058. We're on Facebook and on Twitter at Wittertainment. Have we got time quickly for Beyond the Reach? I think we do. Yes, this okay. is a very small uh, independent American film, which has become jerkingly topical this week because of the death of uh, poor old Cecil the Lion. Um, it's about Hunter, played by Michael Douglas, who is... Uh, also an incredibly high-powered millionaire businessman, waiting for the deal of his life to close, he travels to New Mexico to go and hunt some big game. And uh, he hooks up with Jeremy Irvin, who is this uh, playing this kind of guy who's stuck in a slightly dead-end job. Uh, no prospects. He is going to be his guide on this big game hunt. Together, they travel out into the desert beyond the reach of humanity and civilization. And here's what they say to one another. You've been hunting long? Probably before you were wearing Huggies, kid. Your style looks brand new. I take care of my equipment. Sounds like you have other people doing. I'm no amateur. Okay, kid? And I got the horns to prove it. Rhino, elephant. Trophies, huh? So that's your thing? Well, it sure isn't for the company or the frills. There ain't no greater exercise in boredom. But you're right, I, uh, I bought this baby special when I landed my big horn permit waiting to fill that last little space on the wall. You get a gender exemption? Yeah, adult male only. Mind if I just double-check that permit? Hmm. And of course the permit isn't there because he's rich and he bribes his way through life and, you know, to get what he wants, he just hands over some folded double bills. Now, dollar bills. While they are out on this... um hunt something catastrophically goes wrong um, which i won't give away i'm not sure if it's in the trailer or not i can't remember um but it's it's it's, it's wrong enough to jeopardize this big business deal and the only witness to it is jeremy Irvin's character so michael douglas basically decides to not let him escape alive and he d- decides first of all he's going to force him at gunpoint to wander the desert until he finally expires because it's so hot then later when that doesn't work he, d- he decides to take more drastic action the feel of it is very much like a sam peckinpah movie about men who are out beyond the frontier mm-hmm. resorting to their basest animal selves and there's a, a, a real serious note as, as well Douglas's performance is very much channeling Dick Cheney I mean there's the, the, the of course there was the hunting incident with Dick Cheney where he accidentally shot someone he was out quail hunting with yeah. so there's that obvious plot parallel as well but he's you know very much Dick Cheney's kind of glacial composure there's a line as well that refers to some uh, a famous George W. Bush malapropism as well so it's playing very much on the men at the very very top of the power pile being able to manipulate those beneath them that's all very interesting subtext the problem with the film is once that cat and mouse game begins there's nothing more to it than that and it sort of plays out as expected at the end there is this really ill-advised coda that's bolted on to try and give you a sense that oh well actually everything was all right really and it just undermines all that toughness that's gone before Peckinpah would not have taken that easy way out Mm. I think it's a shame that the the director is a a French filmmaker called Jean-Baptiste Leonelli who has made one film previously 
he's just sort of taken the easy way out and I wish he'd stuck with the, the courage of his convictions. TV movie of the week. Thanks to everybody who's been involved in this. An amazing collection of films uh, as usual available this week. Matthew Turner says, uh, trying to guess what you're going to pick, Robbie. He says, Ice Cold in Alex is superb. My all-time favourite. My number one. There are better films, better acting, better stories, but this one has a special place in my heart. Fiona V. Graham Winder also says, Ice Cold in Alex for me. Hopefully curled up on a couch after Sunday lunch and a couple of glasses of wine exclaiming throughout, this film is brilliant. Uh, Trevor Taylor says, strong week. Obviously Raiders is well up there, but there's The Guard with Brendan Gleeson at his amazing best. But then you've got Midnight Run, one of the best buddy road movies ever. Special mention to Beware of Mr. Baker 2. That is a genius documentary about Ginger Baker. Uh, Rich Lloyd says, too many fantastic movies to choose from. I'd pick The Guard. It's an underrated gem. Normally I'd say Raise, Raise, uh, Raiders, but I've got to say Kick-Ass because it's one of my favourite movies, says Tim Bolitho-Jones. Belinda Bauer says, Midnight Run. Worst named, but most underrated movie of the 80s. Uh, and Maddie Grant from Dust Till Dawn, as it's such an underrated movie, but I think Robbie will go for The Guard. Well, Midnight Run's an interesting choice this week because it's got a lot in common with Hot Pursuit. You know, Hot Pursuit is a kind of a modern female spin on, on, on the film. Yeah. I would have normally chosen actually The Iron Giant, which was, uh, I mean, just one of the all-time great animated films. This is from Brad Bird's pre-Pixar days. Yeah. It's Brad Bird, who of course went on to direct a Mission Impossible film, so it all kind of ties together in it's a like Rogue Landed. Nation syndicate eerie <laughs> way. Um, I mean, really though, of this list, I would say do check out the original Mission Impossible, particularly if you've not seen it for a very long time. You know, it's a proper Brian De Palma film. It's one in which, you know, he draws out, you know, all of De Palma's films about deception and dressing up and voyeurism. And he sees that all of that is involved in spy work. And he translates that out into the movie. And it's, it's just this beautiful, wonderful kind of use of colour and a really measured thriller style pacing rather than this kind of frenetic action that we get now. Uh, that's on at 10 to 7, film four on Saturday night. Is that your choice then? Oh, no one's mentioned Napoleon Dynamite. It's that and the Iron Giant. Okay, Iron Giant you can see on uh, Film 4 on Monday at five past five. Napoleon Dynamite, can't believe no one mentioned that as well. That's on Film 4 Saturday at 3.20. Uh, right, oh, I just want to do this quick email about Amy, the Amy documentary that came in from Josh from Chicago, who says, Hi, Robbie and Edith. I don't think a film has had quite as profound an effect on me in the same way in a long time as Amy has had. Having seen it twice, I haven't been able to shake the feeling that I was uh, culpable in her death. I wasn't that familiar with Amy Winehouse's music. However, I wasn't above making an Amy Winehouse house joke who wasn't however watching the film I was reminded of what Robert Ebert once said movies are the most powerful empathy machine in all the arts when I go to a great movie I can live somebody else's life for a while I can walk in somebody else's shoes I can see what it feels like to be a member of a different gender a different race a different economic class to live in a different time to have a different belief Amy is an empathy machine a masterpiece I not only got to know the singer but I also felt like I got to know Amy as a person and was left devastated by the conclusion of the film Rehab wasn't a cheeky little song about, but a cry for help for me this would make a great double feature with the other masterpiece that is out in cinemas now Mia Hansen loves Eden another the film that follows the career and the downfall of a musician. Josh, what a wonderful um, email. Thank you Yeah, very perfectly. Much I think it's that sense of complicity that you have in Amy, where it's yeah. not just you're, you're not on the outside looking in at this tragic downfall of an incredibly talented artist. It, it's that you are feel like you're somehow part of it because yeah. you're like, 
like like a correspondent said, it's, it's it's about you've joked along with the you know other people that have been joking about it, and you've yeah. sort of seen rehab not for what it was, but just as this kind of uh, fun, lighthearted, slightly naughty song, rather than the cry for help that it was. Yeah. One of the great things the film does as well is it draws out that significance in our lyrics. You know, it was always there to be seen, and it's just I don't think I, I certainly wasn't paying attention at the time. Taking it serious enough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, listen, thank you for that, Josh, and just nice as well to you know you guys don't have to just keep your correspondence to things that are within the top ten of the talking about it's it's anything that you want to talk about film wise to be honest so please do keep them coming in uh right next up cub let's talk about cub which is a belgian horror film uh it's the, the first feature from a, a young director called uh, jonas govertz who i have to say is a regular correspondent to this program this is so, jonas who knows everything about horror so has jonas, gone and made a good horror afternoon film. to you sir i'm going to remind you of some of your correspondence after Robbie's reviewed your film. Okay, so the, pre- <laughs> the premise of the film is that uh, Cub Scouts from Antwerp, which is in the Flemish side of Belgium, go on a trip uh, into the woods in Wallonia, which is the French side of Belgium. And when they get there, the, the, the Cub Scout leaders start winding the kids up, they're about 11, 12 years old, about this werewolf child that lives in the forest called Kai. And unbeknown to them, there is this evil presence in the forest. It's not quite a werewolf child, but there's, the, 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 there's a, a kind of a feral boy wearing a wooden mask uh, and a very burly man who is named in the credits as the poacher. I don't think he's ever referred to as such, but he's rigged up a series of traps around the, the, the forest. Kind of what you expect to happen does happen because the, the, there's enormous tensions within the group. The, the kind of central character is this 12-year-old boy called Sam uh, who is very unhappy, he's very sensitive to these stories that are being told. And the, one of the two Cub Scoutmasters in particular exploits that and gets a sadistic pleasure out of winding up with these tales of you know monsters in the forest and things then in the third act when these two mysterious are they working together are they not working together people descend on 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 the uh, on the campsite all hell breaks loose what i will say is this has obviously been made by someone who knows horror inside out i mean there are references uh seeded through it to all sorts there's a character called inspector franju obviously referring to george franju uh the the area they're camping in is castle rock which is straight out of stephen king mm. uh there's a john carpenter style score uh it's, it's it's very much as well of a piece with the, the new French extremity horror films like Switchblade Romance by Alexandre Aha and um, uh, Pascal Lugier's uh, Martyrs. Uh, I love the kind of setup and the slow burning difficulty, all these kind of topical things as well. You know, it's set in an area where a factory has recently gone out of business. So there's this sense that people in the poorer part of Belgium are resentful towards the richer kids coming in. Yeah. There are two uh, French uh, layabouts and tracksuits who are like characters from a Dardenne Brothers film, just zipping around, just this sense of incipient threat building and building and building what i felt with cub is when the attack eventually comes all of these very very fascinating uh, thematic threads suddenly drop and it's all about the carnage and of course with it being in that new french extremity style the carnage is very tough there's a scene in which there's cruelty to to, to an animal a dog that i found even though the dog is a nasty piece of work very very yeah. difficult to take and I, I, I kind of think those aren't earned quite as well as they maybe could have been. And as a result, the, 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 the big, grotesque, blood-curdling denouement, uh, you kind of want it to be more thematically in tune with the first half of the film. I think it's two halves of very different horror films kind of mm-hmm. welded together. It's a very, very promising debut feature. I'm yeah. not just saying that's because uh, because Jonas is a correspondent. You know, it's, it, is, it just feels like it's almost too many ideas rushing out at once. Yeah. I thought some great performances as well, especially from the the young kid who plays. Yeah, Sam. the little kid that plays Sam is very very yeah, good. Yeah, thought he was. And as I say, the two uh, the, the the two French guys in the tracksuits are very very sinister. Also, the yeah. guy playing Inspector Franju has worked with the Dardenne brothers on their films as well, which are all kind of engaged with. Um, 
uh, disenfranchisement and a, a, a lack of economic power in, in present-day Belgium to very different ends. You know, there's no one running around in wooden masks yeah. as of yet in a Dardenne Brothers movie. <laughs> uh, but this is perhaps what that might look like were that to happen. Yeah, I like the way it looked and I like the pace of it as well, that first kind of first half that you, you refer to and stuff where not that much happens, but you, you become invested in the characters really and, and kind of... You know, you get little snippets of who they are, and you kind of, and that makes you work as a viewer in terms of trying to work out how they're pieced together and stuff. I quite like that about it. Yeah. Um, would you like to hear some of of Jonas's uh, correspondence? Yeah. Would you like to hear what he has to say about Spy, Chappie, It Follows, or Annabelle? I'll go for It Follows and Chappie, please. Okay, It Follows. Uh, atmospheric horror curio that really only has one idea in its head and it's not exactly a fresh one. Have sex and you die. That being said, It Follows does at times possess a truly nightmarish quality, managing to evoke the mood of past horror classics Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Night of the Living Dead, even the original Cat People, without feeling too derivative. Did you say Chappie or Spy? Chappie, Chappie. Uh, Slight step up from tedious techno-bore Elysium, if only because Chappie at least acknowledges its own ridiculousness. It's the kind of film where scientists randomly keep rubber chickens in their glove compartment. Much will depend on your tolerance for the titular droid, who behaves like the robotic child of Jar Jar Binks and C-3PO. If that sounds a tad annoying, wait till you get a load of South African rap duo Diane Wood, I love Diane Wood, whose uh, irritating gangster antics will make you uh, reappraise the entire entirety of Ice T's acting career. Yeah, if if anything from this whole program you haven't heard or seen of any Deantwood's videos, go and check them out. They're mental but brilliant. And there we go, Jonas. Thank you very much. And please do keep, you know, in contact with his show and, and keep telling us what you think. I mean of- you can see from what he says on it follows he he does know horror inside out. He's referring back to cat people and you know drawing all these disparate yeah. influences together into you know appraising a very modern film. That's kind of what happens in Cub. All right, well, let us know if you have seen it. Email us at mail at bbc.co.uk. Text us 85058. We're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, Hot Pursuit. Yes, this is, uh, we, we mentioned Midnight Run earlier in TV Movie of the Week. This is like Midnight Run. The, the high concept is Midnight Run with women. You've got, it's, it's starring and, and produced by Reese Witherspoon as well, actually, as part of her Pacific Standard uh, production house, which she specifically set up um, to, uh, to to get great roles for, for women over 30, more in circulation yeah. in Hollywood. The first two films that came out of Pacific Standard were of course Gone Girl and Wild, which achieved that, you know, and then some. I think the Gone, yeah. Gone Girl I think is absolutely tremendous. Wild is one of uh, Witherspoon's greatest performances of her career. I think yeah. it's wonderful. Hot Pursuit is on a slightly different tack. It's a very, very broad comedy in which Witherspoon plays uh, a policewoman who's the daughter of a, a much loved policeman in, um, in in Texas. She is a bit of a jobs worth and a bit of a wet blanket, not particularly well liked by her colleagues. And she's charged one day uh, with taking the wife of a, a, a big drugs trial, Supergrass, uh, which is about to come to fruition. She's charged with transporting her from her uh, palatial estate uh, to the courthouse where the trial is going to pl- take place. The wife is played by Sofia Vergara and uh, is basically the binary opposite of Reese Witherspoon's character in every respect. And here is the fateful moment when they first meet. Mrs. Reba? I'm Officer Cooper. I'm here to escort you to Dallas. You must have not seen me. Oh, I saw you. Mrs. Reba, I am a police officer. I please look at you. You're teeny tiny. You're like a little dog that I can put in my purse. I can assure you, ma'am, that I meet the minimum height requirement of an adult female my weight. 
I mean, you can see why Witherspoon was attracted to it because it's positioning itself very much in this new tradition of non-romantic comedy, female-driven comedy, like Bridesmaids, and like The Heat, and like, as we'll see in the next couple of weeks, Trainwreck as well, the Amy Schumer film. The problem with Hot Pursuit is that it doesn't do what these other films uh, let their lead characters do, and it's it's just let women be funny on their own terms. I mean, you've got this tradition in, in, in female-driven comedy, certainly in the in, in the 90s and, 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 and most of the last decade as well, is that women can't just be funny, they have to be funny and beautiful or funny and graceful, funny and sexy, funny and dignified. Mm. These extra qualities stop people being funny. And the big revolutionary thing about Bridesmaids was it said, you know what, forget that, just do what you do. And you can have that scene where everyone suddenly uh, has to depart en masse to a bathroom. Yeah. In the changing room. And Hot Pursuit just does not get that. It, it, it kind of toys with it. And there's a running gag about Reese Witherspoon's character having a moustache, except she doesn't have a moustache because that's not how the film works. It's too timid to allow her character to ever kind of look anything less than perfect. And the same goes, of course, for Sofia Vergara. And it just it's like pulling out the comedy plug. When this stuff happens, it's just like, boo, and it runs out of power. Shame. Absolute shame. Uh, right, we've got time for one more. Can we do uh, Iris? Very keen to talk very quickly about Iris. It's the, right. the penultimate film from Albert Maisel's, the great documentary maker who passed away earlier this year. Um, it's about uh, Iris Apfel, who is a 93-year-old fashion icon in New York. It's kind of difficult to put your finger on what she does. She started out in interior design and as a textile importer with her husband. Her husband is now 100 years old. And he, oh, he celebrates his 100th birthday in, in, the, film, in the film. Yeah. They've been together forever. Uh, but basically what she does is she scours, be it... You you know, um, bazaars, marketplaces, high fashion boutiques and pieces together the most unlikely outfits you can ever imagine. So she's choosing like bangles from here, you know, necklaces from Haute Couture, uh, you know, a pair of trousers from uh, Galliano. And this kind of weird cacophony of different influences, she just somehow has this innate ability to make these outfits come together. She looks incredibly odd throughout the film, but she always looks great. Yeah. And what's interesting is this is very much part of Albert Measles' documentary style. He doesn't go for a retrospective of someone's life. He just follows them. It's a style of uh, documentary filmmaking called direct cinema. Frederick Wiseman as well, totally key practitioner, where you just kind of turn up with the camera, observe people going about their everyday life. The director stays out of it. And then later you find the story in the editing suite and kind of make sense of this person's life later. It's it's a, t- a, t- a type of filmmaking that doesn't really kind of send people up or, or elevate them to kind of godlike status. It, it finds humour in the everyday and philosophises about the everyday. And I think as well there's a degree of self-portraiture here as well because the Albert Maisels' filmmaking style is very much like the way that she assembles her outfits. Yeah. And I was, you know, I don't think he ever quite scratches beneath the persona of who she is, uh, but the persona is kind of enough. Yeah, I think it was an absolutely wonderful watch. It left left me really emotional, actually. Not for various reasons. The relationship between her and her husband is just beautiful, and wonderful. They're like, you know, you know, say so he's a hundred, she's ninety three, but they're like children, you know, in the in the environment that they live in. And they have a lovely they... little argument over whose yogurt it is in the fridge, <laughs> yes! his yogurt or her yogurt. Now that's the kind of Maisel's like detail that you can pick up on and run with. You know, if you like Iris, check out Grey Gardens, which is by far away yes. his best film with um with his brother David. Okay, well this has been a something else production from BBC Radio Five Live Robbie Movie of the Week. It's Iris. Amazing. Well listen, thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with special guest Army Hammer talking man from Uncle. Next on Five Live, it's Drive. Uh, there we go. That was this week's show. Loads and few. Wow, what a race! Oh man, um, I feel like I wanted to talk more about Iris as well there because, but we ran out of time during the show because I just thought it was a, you know, it's it, like you said, it doesn't go into any great depth to backstory about her. You find out obviously, you know, kind of where she came from, but not in any great detail. But it was just a lovely watch. I think so, and I think the fact that she has probably been telling her life story 
over and over again for so so many years mm. is, is, is perhaps like partly the, the problem here because when she offers a little piece of wisdom and there are lovely little nuggets of wisdom dispersed throughout it like for one one instance she goes to a marketplace and says you know you should never agree to the first price uh, that a salesman gives you because if you do you'll ruin his day because he'll spend the rest of his time worrying that he could have asked you for three yeah. times as much now that's very neat but for, to me it's a little kind of too neat and it, it feels slightly rehearsed I don't think it was necessarily rehearsed but I think it's the kind of answer she's probably given in, in a few interviews uh, so far and I think scratching away that kind of celebrity persona that she has to get the real Iris whether there's anything you know beyond the persona now or or if she just is who she looks like um, I don't know but for me that kind of it felt like it's you know it's it's not the absolute best example of Albert Maisel's craft I mean it's a good example of what he does well but he's done it so much better specifically in Grey Gardens which is weirdly kind of um, thematically similar film that he made with his brother David about these two uh, a mother and daughter who live in this rambling old mansion house Mm -hmm. in the Hamptons again just looking at the rhythms of their daily life, what they tend to do, and um, and and kind of intuiting from that something, some some sort of broader philosophical truths. Even that kind of thing, I think there's a couple of instances in this where he's outside the room where she is, and he you just hear her. You know, he's maybe on some kind of weird piece of memorabilia that she has in her room, and you just hear her. And I love that kind of thing where it doesn't always have to be on her for you to kind of learn about her or yes, hear her. Yes, it's about being film. there. It's, it's supposedly, of course, it's very constructed in the editing suite, and this is one of the key things of direct cinema is you gather all of this footage and then it's only in the edit suite you piece together the story but you know it's the opposite of someone like Michael Moore's documentary yeah. technique where he's you know barges in with the microphone what do you think about this you know let me tell you that and this is how the world is that's not what direct cinema does it, it kind of leaves it up to you now one of the forefathers of direct cinema get a load of this segue we're, we just, we're sweeping straight back to 1929 it is uh, uh, Giga Vertov the um, Russian filmmaker who made a uh, Soviet filmmaker rather um, who made uh, Man with a Movie Camera, which is this big, uh, this week's big re-release. This is thought of as, I think, quite rightly, as the greatest documentary that's ever been made. And if, if you can see it at all in a cinema, please do. You know, um, Vyartov was kind of the forefather of direct cinema. In that what he did, he was like, he, he came up as a, a someone who worked on uh, Soviet newsreels. And Man with a Movie Camera is basically telling the story of a day in a life of a Soviet city. It was filmed in Moscow and Odessa and Kiev. And kind of assembled uh, at the time from, you know, trips to the beach, uh, rush hour traffic, factories. And his, his camera just kind of observes what's going on around him. And it's like watching this film is like being dragged around this town by an incredibly excited 12 year old who's just saying, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this. This is cool. This is cool. This is cool. And it's this immense sense of optimism and energy. And it's also it's an incredibly kind of sexy and tactile film as well. You know, people at the beach. Um, the, the, there's a little kind of a bathing segment as well, which is slightly naughty. It was before people started to worry too much about morals in cinema. This was made. <laughs> and obviously it was put together as a piece of Soviet propaganda to say, you know, look how great these cities are. And, uh, you know, everything's running smoothly. But mm. it's, it's kind of part of what cinema is at its core yeah. is just showing you these kind of uh, mass occurrences in motion, you know, enormous lanes of traffic kind of buzzing through the city and uh, machines whirring. It's what, you know, a great practitioner of direct cinema, Frederick Wiseman, um, who's one of the Maisel Brothers' contemporaries, uh, does an awful lot. He made a film called uh, Belfast, Maine, which was about this small kind of township in New England. Mm-hmm. The film is about four hours long, and so it's the kind of thing you really have to sit down and, and, and be Invested, prepared to chew over yeah. for an afternoon. And a large part of it is just the goings-on at a fish cannery, which is you know the town's main mode of business. Yeah. And so you have people sitting down, sorting through fish, one person sorting through the fish, one person's chopping up the fish, one person's gutting the fish, putting them into the cans. And it's just 
from these everyday occurrences, the way in which they're edited together, it becomes this kind of beautiful symphony of how life is in this town. That's what Vyartov kind of pioneered with Man with a Movie Camera. It's, it's, it's really, you know, if you were going to choose a, a documentary that kind of defined what documentary filmmaking should aspire to, it's yeah. that. It's all show, don't tell. It lays things out and makes you draw conclusions from the contrast between what he's showing you. Um, and uh, it's also, as I say, it's incredibly energetic, it's incredibly optimistic. It's much, much more accessible than you think 1920s Soviet filmmaking will be. And you say accessible, but I imagine it's on a kind of limited release as well. And you say people should try and see it in the cinema. So, um, yeah, it is. But I think, that, I think it's bit, as a result, uh, they've remastered it for Blu-ray as well. So I great. think if you can't see it in the cinema, it's worth picking up. And I think it's only about an hour long as well. It's not a very long film. Brilliant. All right. Um, well, finally, we said that we had a little extra bit of Josh Gad, who was on the show earlier, talking about, um, well, a little bit about his new film, Pixels, but loads of stuff, you know, whether that be the new Frozen film and, and things like that. And, and lovely kind of to hear him talking about Robin Williams as well. Um, I asked him about Game of Thrones because obviously, well, I asked him about Game of Thrones and here's what he had to say. Are you a Game of Thrones fan? Love. So I'm imagining you kind of cornered Peter Uh, for quite a lot of filming. Not only cornered, (laughs) we were shooting, our shooting coincided with the last three episodes of season four. So I watched those episodes (laughs) specifically that crazy finale two seasons ago involving his father. And I was like sitting there watching Tyrion Lannister respond to Tyrion Lannister. And it was very geeky and surreal. I had to pinch myself. I was like, what's happening right now? Am I in Westeros? (laughs) This is crazy. What do you think about Jon Snow dead or alive? Well, I've read the rumors like everybody else. He's in Belfast. He's been spotted. I saw the pictures. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that um, Fire Lady, what's her name? Yeah. Melisandre was was there. Yeah. As he's killed. Yeah. I think he's alive. I'm going on record as saying it. And I don't have any inside information. I think his little brother's going to come back as well in some kind of uh, form to almost kind of reincarnate him. And so that's my kind of. Like a dire wolf? Kind of type thing. Yeah, I think so. I mean, something's up. Yeah, something's up. He's coming back as a nightwalker. It's not like, you know, maybe. (laughs) It's not like when his dad died and had his head cut off of his body and put on a stake and we were all very much reassured that he was as dead as a dog. Of course, Sean Bean as well. And Sean Bean, it was a little reunion for Peter Dinklage and Sean Bean. And um, yeah, I, I feel like there's less finality than some of the other deaths. Yeah. But we'll see. I love, that's what I love about about things when they, you know you're waiting for the next series. There's no books for them to film and stuff. So all the fans like us are kind of going, you yeah, know, but I think this is going to happen. It's a great kind of sign. Of I will f- say, and I don't think I'm saying anything out of turn, but <laughs> you've got to be in it. I'm pl- I'm they're recasting <laughs> Sam. I'm playing Sam. Um, Peter <laughs> Peter told me that he's read the season six scripts and that they are out of control. Good. He's like they're. I think they're some of the best scripts we've ever had. So that got me jazzed. Oh my. That's all he would tell me. Because he, he knows me. I'll talk about it on British radio. I'm just going to start using the word jazzed from now on when I'm excited about something. I am so jazzed about that. I'm really jazzed about next week's show. I'm super jazzed. Double jazzed. <laughs> I'm free jazzed. Or at Coleman's. Hand jazzed. Yeah. Um, brilliant. All right. Well, listen, hope you enjoyed this week's show. Uh, Robbie, thank you. Pleasure. I'll see you next week. See you then. On digital and online. This is BBC Radio 5 Live. bbc.co.uk slash 5 Live.